0: From Miami Law, I'm Annette Ugez, and this is The Explainer.
1: Parties decided to instead direct that money to about six charities, three of which, uh, which are internet centers at Harvard, Stanford, and Chicago-Kent, were uh, alma maters of the attorneys litigating the case.
0: At the heart of Frank versus Geos, a case before the Supreme Court, is an $8.5 million settlement in a Google privacy case, which ended up squarely in the pockets of everyone except those who were harmed by the violations committed by the tech giant. Today on our show, class action expert Sergio Campos untucks not just the money trail, but the why of the award and the case before the court. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skib for the interview. Good morning, Sergio. Thanks for joining us.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me, Catherine.
0: Good. Um, So let's start out with
2: uh, the case that started it all, Gauss versus Google.
1: Okay. So this is a internet privacy case uh, involving the use of referrer headers. From what I understand, this is definitely not my area of expertise. uh, Google, when you search for a website or search for something on Google... Google will spit out some links that you can link to. Um, if you click on those links, what Google will do is redirect you to that website, but also include what's known as a refer header, letting that website know how the user got to that website. And it'll have information, like they used they use the Google search engine, and it'll also have information about the search terms that were used. Um, and that's it. Uh, this case arose because there was some concern by the plaintiffs, and this is alleged by Paulina Gauss, who's uh, the, the name representative in this case, that uh, vanity searches, like searching for yourself, uh, this information was being sent over to third parties, and this information was being used to find out information about the searcher, mm-hmm. and this would be an invasion of their privacy rights. They filed a lawsuit um, asserting some state law privacy claims, as well as uh, a violation of the Federal Stored Communications Act, mm-hmm. which allows for recovery of $1,000 per violation, as well as attorney's fees. So the lawsuit was brought. Uh, the class was estimated to include well over 100 million people. So there was a settlement that was uh, that was agreed to by the parties for about $8.5 million, Uh and about a quarter of that amount was to go to the attorneys as part of their fees. But rather than distribute the rest of the money to the class members, the parties decided to instead direct that money to about six charities, three of which, uh, which are internet centers at Harvard, Stanford, and Chicago, Kent, were uh, alma maters of the attorneys litigating the case. They, uh, in order to... uh, get a class action settlement, you need approval from the court. And despite some misgivings by uh, the lower court, they decided to go ahead and approve this Cypre settlement award. And Cypre means? So Cypre is a trust concept, and it comes from the French. I'm not going to say the entire phrase, but it roughly uh, translates into as near as possible. And this arose in a context of charitable trust where uh, you could not, let's say that the donor wanted the money to be used for something, but it was impossible. And therefore, courts developed these doctrines to try to approximate, as close as possible, what the donor wanted to be done with the money. Mm. And so courts have imported this trust concept into the class action context to deal with this pretty common situation. And the situation looks like this. You have a class action settlement. the amounts are very small per class member, and there's anticipation that not every class member is going to put in a claim and recover. And so there's gonna be leftover money. And so what do you do with the leftover money? In the past, courts have experimented with maybe uh, putting the money, uh, what they call fluid recovery, uh, where you would give the money maybe as a form of a discount to others that aren't that weren't necessarily the class members. Mm-hmm. Courts hated this particular approach. So what what has become accepted is this Cypre approach, where basically what, what courts have done is use residual funds, funds that were unclaimed, and give it to charities whose purpose, proof purposes, were close to uh, rectifying the kinds of violations at issue in the litigation.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But in this case, none of the money went to the class
1: members. Right. This this, this is what makes this case pretty unique. Um, This is very rare to have what's known as a full Cypre settlement. Mm -hmm. Uh, A Harvard uh, class action expert, Bill Rubenstein, filed an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, uh, where he provided some interesting statistics about the prevalence of full Cypre uh, awards and I think for the past 10 years or so, he included a table, there's been maybe one at most two approved in the entire United States. I think there is something along the lines of 18 approved total in the history mm-hmm. of uh, federal court practice.
2: Thousands and thousands and thousands of cases.
1: Right. And so this just does not happen very often at all. But when it does happen, it is a little, I think it, it, it causes the courts to worry, and those worries were really in full display when you get to the oral argument before the Supreme Court in this particular case.
2: In Frank versus Gauss. In
1: Frank versus Gauss. Um. So before I continue, let me talk a little bit about who Frank is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank is Ted Frank. He's a member of the class, but not one of the named representatives. And the way the class action rule works is that you have one member of the class who is a named representative act on behalf of the rest of the class. Mm-hmm. Frank was not named, but uh, Ted Frank has this interesting practice where he's, he's an objector in many class actions. What ends up happening in a lot of class actions, if there is a settlement, there's an opportunity for individuals of the class to make objections, saying that the settlement is unfair or unreasonable. And Frank has done a... a pretty valuable service in terms of being a kind of objector in many class action cases and pointing out significant flaws in the recovery.
2: How can he, though, is he just like a curmudgeon? Or does he actually have a dog in any of these fights? Like, how is he impacted by all, all these different kinds of class action suits?
1: So it's interesting because um, by... Uh, by definition, uh, most of these class actions are class actions where the recoveries are very low for each of the class members, mm-hmm. and so it 's not like uh, Frank, as a class member, would have a pretty significant financial stake in any of this right. I think he just cares a lot about the issue, and I think he really cares about uh, from uh, just from my observations and his, uh, his his conduct in other cases I, I think he 's worried about uh, class members. Uh, not being uh, looked after or not being cared for uh, in these types of negotiations. They're a particularly vulnerable uh, set of individuals because, by definition, um, if you're going to have a, a class action with monetary remedies like damages, um, it's gonna be, it's usually going to be in situations where the, the amount of money at stake is small. and mm-hmm. People just aren't going to have the incentive to care. And the people who are going to care are the defendant who wants to get out of the liability, and the class action attorneys who want to make a lot of money.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so if you're not careful uh, protecting the class members, there's this fear. I'm not sure how well founded it is, but there's this fear that uh, you'll have situations where the the, the plaintiff's attorneys and the defendant will come to some sort of agreement where they will benefit a, at the expense of the class. Right, And, and I think we, that bothers Ted, and that's why he gets right. active, he's actively involved in a lot of this litigation.
2: Okay, my other question would be, for instance, oh Netflix or your cable provider. If there's a settlement, then why isn't it just, why is there ever money left over? Why isn't it just divided among, I, I think I got something from Netflix where I had, you know, like a credit or, or something along those lines that was paying out on a class action suit.
1: Um, sometimes it's easy, and sometimes it's just simply a matter of the defendant having a record of the uh, of the victims and just simply giving them a credit. But in a lot of cases, uh, you see this a lot um, in the context of uh, consumer-type cases where you have uh, uh, individual purchasers buy something. You need a little bit of proof to figure out whether you're a member of the class or not. Got like, it. Did you buy the product? Mm-hmm. Did you buy the pill? Did you do this? And once you have a big enough class, it gets really expensive to identify these people, Mm -hmm. really expensive. And it's hard to come up with a a claims process that is streamlined enough so that people will actually take the time to recover, given how small the amounts are. And I think, you know, as anyone who's ever had any experience receiving these class action notices, Mm -hmm. you know, you usually have to fill answer some questions and fill out some forms. And even that might be too much to get your $10 or your $5. Right.
2: Class action, 101. Yeah. Perfect.
1: And so uh, so what ends up happening in a lot of these cases, and this is, uh, this is a, a prime example, when, when there's a situation where it's too costly to identify the actual class members so that they can actually distribute the funds to them, courts have have concluded that the money or the efforts may better be used to provide indirect benefits in the form of uh, sidepra to charitable organizations that do the kind of things that were at issue in the litigation. Got it. So uh, so the belief belief being that they should get at least something. In this case, the court believed that with 8.5 million total or 6.5 million available, uh, and there's in a class of about 100 million people, you're talking about recovery about $0.06 cents or $0.07 cents per class member. Is and that a, why
2: there was no payout to the class whatsoever
1: well, that's what because the low, of
2: that distinction?
1: Right. And that's what the lower courts concluded. Mm-hmm. Although Frank argued at oral argument that what ends up happening in a lot of these cases is that you are going to have maybe like a subset of the class members who really care and you can give them bigger awards without the risk of not being able to compensate compensate everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so Frank made this point that the the infeasibility of providing compensation, uh the, the court sort of didn't take into account the possibility that you could have bigger awards for a smaller set.
2: Right. Okay. Um so the court heard the Supreme Court heard the case in October. Was there any tipping that that might have shown Which way they're going or which way some of the the justices may be leaning?
1: So we have a little bit, and this is just based on following the court for a while on class action issues. Uh, We do know that Justice Roberts is not a big fan of Cypre Awards. And he wrote a separate opinion in a settlement involving Facebook uh, where the court decided not to take up the case at the time. But he said we really need to get a handle on these types of cases. Mm -hmm. And based on his questioning in this case, it's pretty obvious that, uh, that Justice Roberts is not a big fan. Um, I actually pulled out all the nine justices and tried to map out where I think they're leaning based on their questioning. I'm going to leave uh, Justice Thomas aside because uh, he never asked questions or argument. Like, but I'm, he's probably not a big fan of these types of, uh, of these settlements. So this is what I could sort of glean based on listening to our argument and sort of reading about the case. Uh, on the one hand, you have Justice Sotomayor and Justice Breyer, based on her questioning, sort of taking a tack like, well, yeah, there's there's some issues with these types of uh, of these settlements, but they don't happen very often. And here, I, Sotomayor had cited that Rubinstein brief I mentioned. And uh, for, for that reason, it seems like the system's working, and if they're using the same rules that we've always used – then we should probably, this should probably be fine.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: you have sort of a middle pack, and this is where things got interesting and where a wrench was kind of thrown into oral argument. Both Kagan, Justice Kagan and Justice Corsage uh, brought up the issue of standing. Now, standing is an issue, uh, it's, a, it's a technical issue that has to do with whether someone can bring a case into federal court at all. Mm-hmm. So it's a threshold issue, what they call a jurisdictional issue. And in order to satisfy standing, you have to show, among other things, that you have – you've not only asserted a legal violation, but there had to be some sort of personal harm that you felt. And the reason for this – there's a lot of policy reasons for it. Uh, Separation of powers, you want to make sure that you have uh, claims that are appropriate for courts rather than legislatures. There's Mm -hmm. also – you want to make sure that parties are sufficiently motivated to litigate the case and uh, develop the facts and the law for the courts. But uh, in in any event, you have to show not only that there was a legal violation, but that the plaintiff was personally harmed.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And the courts reiterated that in a very recent class action case around 2014, 2015, uh, Spokio v. Robbins, Mm -hmm. where the court said it's not enough to show that there's a violation of a federal statute. You have to show that uh, you were actually hurt by this. Mm -hmm. That's come up a lot recently
2: on the emoluments Correct. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, who has standing to bring suit against the Trump organization?
1: And it's funny you mention that because I I taught a little bit of the Trump emoluments case that's right now in the uh, the D.C. Circuit, Mm -hmm. and um, that's been a major preoccupation. Although the plaintiffs, I think, were able to uh, uh, to 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 declare that hurdle, they were able to show harm. So here's a difficulty that the justices were having in this case: you do a search on Google. A referral header. A refer header is sent to the third-party website, but the only information a header has is that those terms were searched on Google. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have any identifying information about the person. And moreover, in privacy, privacy is this great exception where uh, true facts can be a disclosure of true facts can be ser- considered harmful if they're private. And you can think of a number of ga- examples where that's the case, like uh, family, you know, uh, interfamily disputes or interpersonal disputes. And so here, the court was skeptical as to what could possibly, even if you could trace back the search to the person searching, mm-hmm. they're skeptical that anything the person was searching was actually private in that sense. Mm-hmm. You search for your name, you find links about your name, that's completely publicly available. There's nothing private about
3: that. Mm-hmm.
1: And the plaintiffs made this argument. They, they focus on one class member by the name of Anthony Italiano, mm-hmm. and Anthony Italiano did some searches about himself and his soon-to-be ex-wife, and they made the argument that uh, if these, these cluster of referrer headers would allow a third party to infer that he and his wife were about to be separated. Okay, um, and there was some uh, there was some sympathy towards that kind of harm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, apart from that, there was very little developed below in the lower court as to the harm that was suffered by any of the class members other than Italiano. And uh, the court, when, dis- when deciding the jurisdictional issue, had decided it before Spokio was decided. And so it did not address the separate issue of harm apart from the legal violation. Got it. And so you had, uh, you know, Kagan, uh, Justice Scorsage... And Justice Ginberg, mainly Ginsburg and Kagan, sort of suggesting that the best uh, alternative route would be to simply uh, give the give the case back to the lower courts and figure out the standing issue. Okay. And there seemed to be a compromise uh, by the justices where they asked for additional briefing on the standing issue. Um, and I think uh, the order was sent uh, shortly after uh, oral argument in late October, and uh, the briefs are starting to roll in. Okay. So you have like a, a middle cluster. I would lump Ginsberg, Kagan, Gorsuch that uh, would probably use standing as a way to sort of not deal with the underlying issue of cypress. Right. Now you have sort of a good, a nice cluster of, I would include Roberts, Alito, and Kavanaugh, who uh, really focus, I think, on the real danger that you have with these types of cypress awards. And the real danger is that uh, you worry about these massive conflicts of interest that could arise, particularly when you're trying to identify the beneficiaries for these Cyprey awards, mm-hmm. as uh, Frank points out in his uh, in his opening brief. Uh, three of the six recipients were alma maters of the attorneys. Mm-hmm. You also so another recipient was uh, a charity that Google had contributed to in the past. Okay. And uh, you saw in the questing, particularly from Alito, uh, some concern that you're you're going to set up a situation where the judge is going to have a preferred beneficiary and the defendant's going to have a preferred beneficiary and the plaintiff's going to have a preferred beneficiary. And they're essentially going to be indirectly enriching themselves mm-hmm. by having funds uh, to donate that they otherwise, that otherwise would have come from their own pockets, mm-hmm. which would be a disaster. Um, because uh, one thing that I think one sort of underlying agreement among the justices is that uh, give, just simply giving the money back to the defendant would be a bad idea because you want the defendant to be held accountable for any of the wrongdoing. Um, and so there is some risk um, among this core group of justices that they're going to really come down hard on Cypre.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, The one interesting thing that came out of the oral argument, I thought, was some questioning by Kavanaugh, where he sort of, he was picking up on some arguments that were made in the briefs and some suggestions by Frank and oral argument. Where so Frank says, maybe you could have a distribution scheme where you, tar- you don't, not everybody gets to recover, but a su- but some amount of people get a uh, recovery. Mm-hmm. And Kavanaugh suggests, well, why don't you have a lottery system where you identify some members of the class and just give them the money? Mm hmm. And um, on our argument, um, the attorneys for Google and uh, and the uh, and the plaintiffs, the, the Gauss attorneys, sort of said, "Well, that's completely strange." And Kavanaugh said, "It's no stranger than giving the money to people who are completely unrelated to the litigation." Right. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to make an appearance in any opinion that comes out of a court. I, I doubt it, but it's 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 an interesting uh, it's an interesting thought, and uh, at least suggests that. Uh it's, I guess at least for Kavanaugh, uh, consistent with Roberts and Alito, they just really, it, it, it's hard for them to really support this idea of Cypre at all.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, we'll keep an eye on this and get you back on the mic uh, when
0: we see the decision handed down.
1: Great. I, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. On next week's episode, we will be examining the relationship between President Trump and the media. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uges. Today's show was brought to you by the annual Hospitals Healthcare Services and Access Course, a multidisciplinary study with top experts in the field, including University of Miami President Julio Frank. For more information, go to law.miami.edu and search healthcare law.